Welcome to SickCast, brought to you by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path. My name is Jocelyn Gore, and I'm a researcher at SICRI, and I'm excited to introduce her and their Singh, um, who is Senior Fellow and Innovation Director at SICRI, um, who I've worked with for a while now on the Guru Granth Sahib project and on the State of the Bunth Report and various articles. So I'm excited to have this conversation on Bedbi. Um, talking about distortions, transgressions, and responses. Um, this is a topic that we've been talking a lot about um, because of the the two most recent cases in October and December, and it's just been on our minds. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Welcome, Harinder Singh. Um, I think it would be good for us to start uh, with just sort of introducing why it is that we wanted to talk about this. So if you could tell us why you know, we've, we've been thinking about this topic, that would be great. Well, uh, Gurfate, first of all, and it's nice to have this conversation. We, we have a lot of these informal ones, and now we get to have it here because we are having this conversation because you said you want to have this conversation. This is important. Uh, one of the things we talked about was that sitting here in diaspora, are we able to understand what these bedbees really mean for us here? For people who are facing it in the ground realities and somehow providing a context in the politics of Punjab, in the Sikh politics, and larger issues which are affecting Sikhs. So I think there are varieties of reasons why we need to be having more of these conversations, especially given that, um, you know, the tumultuousness and the political volatility in Punjab and the elections around. So it's pretty timely. Uh, so we're having this conversation because you asked for it. Yes. <laughs> I think you asked for it on behalf of folks like yourselves, right, in the diaspora uh, who may watch a particular video or a tweet feed and are wondering what exactly is going on here. Do we have the full picture? Yeah, I, I definitely have been thinking a lot about like my position as a diaspora Sikh so far kind of removed from that news and from the context around it. Um okay. And so I think like when when all this was in the news, it was really hard for me to kind of parse out like what is even true about each particular case. And also there was so much that I didn't know about the larger context around Bedbi. I, I think I've we all have a tendency to focus in on like what is kind of not even sensationalized, but what is focused on in the media. And so it was really helpful for me to have those conversations with you. And I think that like, if I'm feeling this way, then there's probably a lot of other folks who are just as far removed and kind of overwhelmed by trying to sort through things and, and understand the larger context. Um, and so, yeah, I'm excited to have a conversation that's kind of geared towards understanding Bid B um, and its context on a larger scale than just like the things that we might see more immediately in current events. Um, yeah, I just, yeah, I think my understanding was very limited before. And 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 to be fair, Jocelyn, you know, this is a conversation which lots of people in Punjab and Delhi and India are also having. I remember getting uh, phone calls from some news reporters, also people who were writing about it, 
I know I had a couple of conversations when the incidents took place and some of the media circuits as well. Mm-hmm. And there are sick lenses missing to the conversation. And I'm not claiming that I have a complete sick lens, but we do have a perspective as to how to how to also look at this because most of the coverages are not providing enough of the sick lens. They're still framing conversations mostly on a particular event or incident without the macro picture. Yeah, and I think along that vein, if we can kind of jump into the conversation, at its like most basic level, I'd like for us to understand what BEDBI is um, and how it is defined um, kind of, yeah, in a sick context, because I know that we talked a lot about these words like blasphemy and sacrilege, which are such... Um, so like rooted in sort of Judeo-Christian or like Abrahamic ideas. Um, and so I was wondering if you could define Bedbi to answer the question of like, what really is Bedbi and where does that word kind of come from? Um, and how is that like situated in our, in our context rather than in the kind of English translations that we see? Yeah. And it's very important to go back to the words themselves because Every word has its own connotation, its own background, and its own politics. Mm. So Be'adbi, you know, if we start there at a very simple premise, this is the most common word used uh, when we, we use it. Six uses themselves, not just when there is a sort of a, uh, as the world is calling sacrileges and other things of that nature, but we use this word when we are also not able to give a complete level of, higher level of respect in a particular way. So actually the word is adab. And it's an Arabic word, and in bay adab means without adab. So we got to understand what adab is. <laughs> it's not our, it's a word which we have uh, in Punjabi even, because Punjabi is not an analytic language, it's synthetic. So it brings uh, meanings from where it starts. So it's Arabic, and then it traveled to us through Persian and other literature. So we have those Islamic and other influences as well. So the background is that. And the adab actually in Persian means it, it is related to words like education and culture and good behaviors, even sometimes politeness and proper demeanor. So I say it is largely associated with the word ethics, as we call it today. And when this word gets invoked in South Asia, uh, when it's coming from Persian and Islamic angles, uh, you know, in Urdu and Punjabi, it's used even today. Uh, and the word bayadab and bayadbi are become synonymous. And when it has come to Today's usage in Punjabi or Urdu, it is really meaning disrespect. Some some indecency is going on. There is a disrespect going on. Uh, I am going to get into and use the word that there is irreverence going on. Without reverence or irreverence. So in the Sikh parlance, you can say when the word adab or opposite of it, beadab or beadbi is used, it really is going into the ideals of reverence, you know, how do we think about this? How do we articulate this idea of Be'adbi? And how do we practice or not practice? So how does this reverence get played out or not played out, especially in reference to the, uh, the Guru Granth Sahib? And then there are protocols related to all of this, uh, which is what we call what is the mariyadda then, like what is the discipline or the protocol such that we are able to give the highest levels of reverence. So that's where the word is coming from. And it's largely invoked uh, for Guru Granth Sahib, but really it's the spirit of it's invoked for the Guru. And the form of the Guru we have is Guru Granth Sahib as well. And 
any forum which has Shabbat, then it gets passed on to those levels of adabs. So we do not become be'adab to it, which means we need to provide the highest level of reference. Hmm. Reverence, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I think um, that leads me into kind of another thing that I've been talking about or thinking about. We've been talking about, but I've been thinking about a lot too, is like our you know, in reference to our relationship with the Guru and with the Guru Granth Sahib, like what does, um, like what does Be'adbi sort of mean? And I think that like, in order for us to understand um, this larger kind of context around these current events and and around Be'adbi in general, hmm. we also have to understand like what our relationship with the Guru Granth Sahib is, both as like individuals and as a collective. And I think like, we know kind of like logically or we hear it a lot that like the Guru Granth Sahib is the Guru, is this living Guru. And it's like even part of that kind of like five minute sort of pitch that we do when we're kids to other people of like, why do you mud the dick? And why do you do these things? And why do you cover your head? Um, but sometimes I think it's easy to forget that. And so mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could kind of break down the the like relationship that we have to the Guru Granth Sahib as a living Guru so that we can kind of understand the depth of that relationship before we get into any other kind of conversations about Bedbi. Yeah, and, and I think you you raise interesting sort of a point, which is already living in the sick psyche. And that's why when you say as a child, you know, we understand or we are accustomed to treating or respecting or giving a reverence to Guru Granth Sahib in a particular way and extend it to Guru and other things associated with the Guru. So look, it comes out of the Guru and Guru uh, for us is when we know Guru Granth Sahib, it is not just a book. So when we talk about uh, what is Guru Granth Sahib for us, we have to understand the Granth part is what makes it the anthology. And this is why when we say it is not just a book and it is not a book, that's what's behind it, and it's our guru. And guru is perfection for us. It is not even just wisdom of just any kind. And it's constant for us, which means it's not changing. Uh, and Sahib makes it who we take orders from, who do we treat as our sovereign. So Guru Granth Sahib is an eternal sovereign for us. It is akin to, when we call it a living guru, that the guru lives amongst us, which means guru is living with us, through Guru Granth Sahib, and we see this, regardless of the level of observ- observation of six, um, whether they keep here or not, and I'm saying it intentionally because we need to understand how this applies to 30 million six, whether we have taken Amrit or not, or whatever other things we may or may not do as an observant six of a particular kind, when somebody is born in our house, when we are getting married, when somebody dies, when people are taking Amrit, it is the Guru which is invoked at every level. Mm-hmm. So this is very much part of Sikh psyche. It is seen throughout Punjab and it also in diaspora because we invoke the Guru as the one who's present in the ceremony, in the, uh, not just the ceremonies, but in every environments where we are invoking something in the name of the Guru. In fact, literally even, you know, when we say, uh, in English, we'll say how many pages Guru Granth Sahib has and we say the standardized form has 1430. But in Punjabi and in, in the original parlance, we end up saying, and ang is literally a limb. So this idea of a living guru, that the guru lives among us, lives among six through the Shabbat, and Shabbat, that wisdom, that idea of word, 
is available to us in the anthology, which we now call Guru Granth Sahib because anthology has been elevated to the level of Guru and an eternal sovereign. So this is really a departure from Indic traditions of religious text as well as Semitic traditions of religious text because uh, the level of reverence they pay is maybe only at a thought level. For us, it goes beyond thought. You know, we see it as practice in culture and society. It is indeed, it is an action. And hence all the paraphernalia which goes with Guru Granth Sahib uh, in, in presenting it as a, a royal who is present among us. So it is a very, very different relationship. It is not just a relationship of scriptural understanding or thoughts and productions of thought and knowledges. It is anything and everything that we center our lives around it. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking a lot about like just our, our like the sort of physical relationship that we have with it of like, this is who we, you know, this is who we bow to. This is who we sit behind with the fly whisk. This is who we cover with like royal fabrics, right? Like there's so much that is like in our day-to-day kind of lived relationship with the living guru that I think we can can kind of come back to if we're if we're like ever kind of venturing into that mindset of like, oh, it's just a book because it's not. Um, so I think that's all been really helpful for me and I hope that helps other people. Um, I know that we... Yeah, sorry. I wanted to actually say something more to that. So yes, it's not just for us also. I think anyone who's studying us mm-hmm. needs to understand this sort of a uh, unique relationship Sikhs have with the Guru Granth Sahib, because their relationship is not only with the Granth, you know, and that's the differentiation. I think it is in our psyche, like we may not understand it fully until something happens and then people don't know how to react to it. Well, we react to it based on our relationships and the relationships as individual six, as well as collective six, is something much bigger than uh, a religious text. It is, if you want, it's like, you know, people say there are, like in America, you say, you know, George Washington is sort of like the father of the country. You know, I'm using American context here. Well, this in this case, Guru Granth Sahib is the guru, um, father and the mother and the friend and everything else, all the relationships you can imagine of at least 30 million people who call themselves six and many more. It will actually run into possibly up to billion if you count others who believe in more than the text part of it as well. So the relationship is that this is my sovereign, my living guru, my existence, my ceremonies, my thinking, our tough decision makings are all dependent on this source of not only knowledge, but this source of life. That's the relationship. Yeah, that's great. That's really helpful. I. I know that like we had talked about like whether um or like Be'adab are are words that are kind of invoked in the Guru Granth Sahib. And I know that the answer to that is no. But um we had talked about Bainand Lal's invocation of this word. And that's been really helpful for me. I I'm really interested in the understanding of Be'adbi as an internal thing. So it like begins with this internal reflection on our like reverence in our individual like relationships that we have with the guru and thus and thus the guru grand sahib um so we did talk about things like that we do in our in our personal relationships of like not being intoxicated and covering our heads and taking off our shoes and doing matadik like all these things that we do to express that reverence um and i wanted 
I wanted you to maybe dwell a little bit on on that um, on that sort of exploration by by Nundlal because I think maybe sometimes we're worried about like a kind of slippery slope argument of like okay well if this is how we react when people are doing this kind of bid be then what about if people have like alcohol in their home or if they have or if they don't cover their heads at home and like these kinds of things where it becomes like a a worry about like policing in that individual relationship. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the external and the internal reverence that Bainan Law gets at. Uh, absolutely. And I think uh, let's start with where you, you know, involve this external part first. I mean, if you think about the protocols of the sovereigns, whether you agree that's your sovereign or not, everyone has to follow those protocols if they want to be in the vicinity of that sovereign. Mm-hmm. That's how Guru Granth Sahib works. That's why if you go to Gurdwaras throughout the world, and I know many in the West may not post these signs, but I've seen even in the West this happens. But throughout India, it's very, very clear. Every Outside every Gurdwara, it says very clearly that you cannot walk in with the shoes. You cannot walk in with alcohol and tobacco consumption, or which means you're consuming or drunk with it. And you cannot walk in uh, 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 with your head not, head not covered. So it's those things are understood because those are the minimum protocols, right? And there is something much more. Mm. So when you do something worse than that, you know, as the words get invoked like desecrations and uh, sacrileges, which we'll get into, what they're really meaning is you cannot physically, you know, as we say, manhandle something. If you cannot physically do certain things to a sovereign, there will be reactions to that. But the way, uh, as you went into this, you know, I was also curious, where is this word coming in the Sikh text, in our traditions? And Painanla Goya, in his composition in uh, uh, Zindagi Nama, actually invokes it several times. And uh, uh, I know you and I are also working on this article, and which is kind of outgrowth of our discussions, as well as this podcast. And for that, you know, I, I had to go find translations. And I'm like, okay, where do we locate this? Where is this word entering? And Painandlal, who better individual who's telling us how to be in the adab of the guru, right? How to be in the reverence of the guru. That's the word I'm choosing to use. And I actually want to recite a couple of those original lines because I think they're quite profound. And they're not just poetic. Then we have to use those incredible poetic reverences uh, for our purposes, uh, for this discussion as well. And he uses that, and the line he says is, Be adab hargiz bahak rahe nayafat. Rahe hakra reach gum rahe nayafat. So that's one of the shares. And then he continues, Hadiye rahe khuda amad adab. Be adab khalisat az altafe rab. And you can probably relate to some of the words, you know, the word rab is used here, the word khuda is used, and it's talking about hak, which is equivalent of, as we say, koankar. And then the last one I'll invoke here is Be Adab Rahe Khuda Kedandash. Har Kira Kahar Khuda Mirandash. Obviously, my Persian is not how they will speak in Afghanistan or in uh, Iran. But the point I'm trying to make is that Painandalal uses the language where the word is coming from and contextualizes it for mm-hmm. us what kind of discussion we should be having with these words. So, you know, for our discussion, simply look, this he's saying um, three things. First thing he's saying is that the one who is be'adab, which means irreverent one, has never found the way to the truth. And the truth here is with the capital D, which is invoking the one, uh, the Ikhwankar. 
And then a stray one, the one who was lost in the world, did not find the way and the truth. So the first thing it's being told is, if one is irreverent, they're lost in the world and they cannot find the one. That's the point. That's how the word is used. And then the second one uh, thing he's showing is that the way to Khuda, the way to the divine is through reverence. Reverence is what shows the way to the divine, the way to Khuda. And it's the irreverent one who's bereft of the grace of the divine or the rub is the word he used. So it's very interesting because rub also means this idea of sustainer and the cherisher and the nourisher and all these Arabic words which are invoked. But the idea is of the one. And the third point that he makes is, how can irreverent one know the way to Khuda? How can the one who's irreverent know the way to the one, to the Kuankar, who has been damned by the havoc of Khuda? Kahar word is used, you know. And, and the point here is, like, irreverent one cannot discover the way. Irreverent one cannot know the way. Irreverent one can never find the way. And it's only the reverence which was which will show us the way. So that's the that's the first invocation that I am aware of in the Sikh text. And this is at the time period of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj. It makes a lot of sense because protocols are being developed at that time. Our rats, our maryadas are coming into writings and explorations. And this is how organizing of the Sikhs is happening. And when this organizing of the Sikhs is happening, Painandar Goya is asking us to really think about the individual's reverence towards the Guru, and out of that is developed a collective reverence towards the Guru. Yeah, that's great. I, I've been thinking a lot about like that that community practice of external reverence, like what we do um, as a collective. And so, you know, we've talked about protocols that, that we might have when we're like in Sangath with one another, but I also, um, something that was kind of mind blowing to me in a way um, was like this realization through our discussion of like part of our, like part of our ability to show collective reverence is, is like through a refusal to accept Bedbi. And then to take that a step further, that like our refusal to accept Bedbi actually goes into an additional collective reverence, which is like to respond in some way. Um, and that through that response, like if we can see our responses as a form of reverence, I think that like we can start to understand them a lot more, especially if we're far removed from them the way that like, you know, that we are. Um, so yeah, I think that, that was like a thing that I that really hit me. And I, I think I'm still thinking about it. I'll probably be thinking about it for a while. Is there anything that you want to say on that? Well, I think I want to double down on it because I don't think it's understood. Mm. You know, this point about that when we are responding to it in our individual capacity or in our collective capacity, and we, we can talk about some of those examples, that in itself is a form of reverence because, and this is... Uh, the lines can be invoked from Guru Granth Sahib regarding this. Like, how do I talk about the greatness of the Guru? How do I deal with people who are not invoking that? What is my response to when this is not happening? And there are varieties of explanations of those Shabbats for different contexts as well. But this itself, responding to irreverential behavior is a form of showing a reverence as well. Now, how people respond is, you know, they range from protests, they range from doing part, they range from reasoning, 
the, and then all the way when you see systematic and widespread usage in history and otherwise, they range from you know responding to it uh, beyond nonviolent means as well. Because some of this is emotional. Remember, what is our relationship with the guru? Mm. So the both internal and external, we are not as focused as people on what is wrong and what is right. Absolutely, right? It is about what is my relationship asking me to do about it. So in one case, it might be that 100,000 of us sit on a protest and we say, you know, this is really about individuals who are doing this. This is really about there's a political game at play. In other cases, it needs to, it might be, you know what, I know that I'm an irreverential one, but I still want Guru in my house and I'm going to invoke in the best of my capacity as to how to treat the Guru, as to how I open it, what kind of space I put the Guru and what kind of Ramalas I put. So mm -hmm. everything is part of this. I think what we need to understand is the personal reverence is what drives the collective reverence. The protocols are very much there as to how it needs to be, but our responses are born out of that. So I, I just want to come back to that. Responding to it is equally part of it. Again, what response is more apt or not apt is a debate we can continue to have. Mm -hmm. And I think people have been having those debates, but it needs to be understood that that is part of showing our reverence. And then the first part, uh, <laughs> this, uh, I, I, I think you said it, but internal and external, how it comes together. I, I want to come back to that a little bit. Look, it comes together because everything in Sikhi is internal and external. Mm -hmm. This is the debate we have in theology as well. And the debate eventually ends there. That yes, we need to understand the literalism. And yes, we need to understand this interpretive nature. You, you separate the two, then people will be saying same thing about Nam. Do I only say it from my mouth or do I only become like the Nam? Well, it's both. You know, the one cannot be separate from the other. Similarly, when the poetic things come within Guru Granth Sahib, and I'm invoking this on purpose because when we start separating internal and external, literal and figurative, all these things become uh, very sort of uh, diabolically opposing views, but they are not. Similarly, our internal relationship drives our external relationships. Our internal reverence drives the expectations and protocols of external reverence. And that really needs to be, I think it is understood and practiced by six. Uh, some of us who are removed from certain practices or are not aware of certain practices may find it startling when something happens. But this really is a history. Our history is the relationship between and the Sikh and Guru is bi-directional, and we do everything in our capacity, in our personal capacity, in our panthic slash uh, collective capacity to maintain that relationship, that sanctity, and that sovereignness. That's great. I, it, it kind of like yeah, it it very smoothly kind of dovetails into something that we've also talked about, which is that like variety, the variety of responses and understandings. Um, and so something that you had said is like, okay, if, you know, we know like realistically, if the guru is of 30 million six, then among those 30 million, then there are going to be like a variety of different responses and different ways of responding and even like different opinions on what is the best way to respond. Um, so I guess my question then is that like, even with that diversity, 
in response that we've seen in our history? Like, what have we collectively as six understood about the issue of Bedbi? And what, um, and also kind of additionally, like what collective responses or mechanisms have we used in the past when it comes to this, this issue? Well, so uh, we will say that when something is dealt at the collective level, and this is where it gets to starts to become gray, and we must accept it's gray because we are not the people of the law. Remember, I'm going to keep coming back to it. We are the people yep. of the spirit. And in spirit, many things are accepted and understood as well because we are not going, it's situational, it's emotional, and many other things happen. So in collective Sikh history, we have seen all sorts of things. The responses have ranged from, as I said a little bit earlier, that, and in fact, let me bring some native terms to this. You know, this protest idea. You know, protest is English word. We are used to it now. We have seen it in last five years. But our words used to be morchas as well. That's our word. We will have a morcha. Morcha has been regarding Guru Granth Sahib's and Langar's and Akhand parts as well. So the, the idea is that this idea of uh, civil disobedience is the word we are, we are now used to. It's actually that, that we may choose to just sit and do part. We may choose to just block the police or the railroad access. 100 years ago, we did it under the British. We have done them in the last five years as well. Mm-hmm. So that's one form of it. You know, the other forms have been when there have been extremities and many things tried, there have been uh, militant responses to it, mm-hmm. you know, including with arms, uh, including the term actually has been soda. And we need to understand that. And I know we are in 2022. And I understand some people are uncomfortable with it, but this is what happens. Soda or sodana, which is the word form of it, is actually when it's it's being corrected. Mm-hmm. And in correction, there have been incidents, including in Darbar Sahib complex, including not in last year, but hundreds of years ago, including in 18th century, where emotional response has been, you know what, enough is enough. And if this is how you're treating physically my guru, I am going to physically stop you as well. Mm-hmm. And that's where the word soda comes in. Uh, I know sometimes it gets hyper accentuated and amplified, but the incidents of that are not many. Mm-hmm. But when that incident does occur, because we don't have the context, it gets blown out of proportion. So that's been another way we have responded. And there are uh, there can be... Uh, so anyway, I think I, I'll just stop there for a second and see if that answers your question because uh, it, it ranges from doing some sort of a civil disobedience mm-hmm. to all the way in some very, very, very extreme and limited cases, uh, physically responding to it with arms as well. Yeah, no, that does answer my question. And I think, I mean, the follow-up to that is like, is how we've dealt with this like with sort of the systematic, I mean, I know we called it, I mean, and I agree with this, like this political issue, because it's so widespread um, and so entwined with with the politics and the sort of political sphere. Um, like how have we dealt with Bedbi Bantikli? I know you had talked about like um, 
uh, a Sarbath Khalsa. So I, I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, the 2015 Sarbath Khalsa. Yeah, yeah. I think we, so we have mechanisms. You've invoked that earlier. So we do have mechanisms to deal with some of this. When it's a deliberative work, when it's systematic and widespread, which, by the way, in last five years it has been. We should talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And and I'm not using those terms, you know, gently. It is. You know, in last five years, even if you go by the crime, National Crime Bureau's data in India on the most number of quote-unquote sacrilegious cases in India, they have been registered mostly in Punjab. Number one state is Punjab, which means it is happening a lot. Uh, the last count has been that there have been about 400 cases in last five years. Yeah. You know, so this is not one or two incidents where a physical response is when it makes it to media. But there are there have been two commissions which have talked about this. I mean, we can go back 40 years ago, there was a commission set up to deal with it, and their report was never made public. Nakodar's, its anniversary just went by, the Nakodar incidents, you know. Uh, and now uh, we have Bargadi incident. Their commission was set up. Its report was also, the second part was not made public. What people need to understand is this is happening a lot. I mean, it happens quite a bit. When you say 400 cases, and number one, according to even government statistics, and punctically so, how do we deal with it? Look, even Akal Takh Jathedar, who is appointed the current one, the SGPC appointed Jathedar, he has also had gatherings and conferences on it now. Now, what happens is we are in a political climate. It's a political problem. It needs a political solution as well. So politically, this is where things get involved. Like political parties talk about it, they invoke incidents, but they don't do anything about it. Mm. Sometimes they do do things about it. Both Akali government and the Congress government actually said, let's make this something more than a six month or a three year uh, sort of a punishment when people do do this, because in the case of six, this is not just a religious text, mm. it is a living guru. And how will you handle something on the charges of manslaughter, for example, like that. So actually, Punjab government, under the Akalis, passed a bill which asked for sentencing up to 20 years, which is a lifetime sentence. National government of India, they actually said, no, this is not secular enough. Then the Congress government has passed a, a, a revision on that to include other religious texts. Even then, Indian government has not done anything. So particularly what happens is you can have conversations in Gurdwaras at a local level. When it becomes more systematic and widespread, we have conversations regionally. We even had a Sarvat Khalsa was invoked in 2015 on this because there were incidents which were not dealt with properly by the government as well as the Sikh political parties and the state of Punjab. And not just that, it was orchestrated to create pardoning of Gurmeet Ram Rahim's at Akal Takh Sahib. So actually the Ras Sarbat Khalsa was invoked and called for by citing incidents related to Bedbis of Guru Granth Sahib and not dealing with it, but actually creating and orchestrating pardons of people who are associated partly with those in case of Gurmeet Ram Rahim, mm -hmm. who runs Dera Satcha Soda, who actually again, to make it more timely, who was just released for 21 days because Punjab is going through elections. Mm. So I want to talk about that as well. So, punthically, how we have dealt with it is this. Uh, and then, again, 
in, in locales through our Gurdwara conversations and figuring out what is the best way to deal with it. Because sometimes we do understand it happens in ignorance, mm. right? Sometimes it happens because six their own faults. Like when we have our own fights in Gurdwaras and then when the police comes there with shoes. So we have to deal with those things as well. So our local Gurdwaras deal with it. Local Sangats deal with it. We are, we, are, we are struggling with it in our personal reverences as well while we demand external reverences. At the same time, we deal with it by going all the way uh, when even a Kaltakt fails or it's being manipulated uh, through its Chathedars and the Panjpiyares, then we have gone, uh, gone all the way to calling Sarbat Khalsas to deal with it as well. Yeah, I mean, so, so much of this, like I didn't know when before we had our first conversation. And I think that that's, it really like puts so much of this focus on the two most recent cases into much larger and more complicated and like, frankly, from where I'm sitting, like much more frustrating perspective. Um, and so I know we only have like, like 10 minutes. So I, I do want to ask a couple more questions and kind of, um, yeah, kind of close up this conversation. Hopefully this is helpful for people the same way that it's been helpful for me. Um, I think, you know, we've talked about our institutions failing us. We've talked about um, governmental institutions failing us. And I, something that I've been really thinking about, and I know I've talked to you about, is that like um, so much of the context and nuance around Bedbi is actually not even directly about Bedbi. Like it's also about the realities that we see in Punjab that we are far removed from. And we've talked about like the gap in understanding between Punjab and, and, you know, larger India, and then also the gap that exists in understanding between Punjab and, and the diaspora. And, you know, something that we've talked about a ton is like this, um, this way that we forget just like the history and the sort of trauma of our, like, community that exists largely in in Punjab and and not so much in the diaspora um and so like this this long history of of trauma and incitement of hatred against six and genocide and mass killings and disappearances and and even just like the constant sort of unease um that you can feel as like a sick living in Punjab i i think it's really important for diaspora six especially and even people who aren't six who maybe live outside of that context to to really like understand as much as they can um because it becomes really easy for me sitting in maryland to say like shouldn't we be more thoughtful about this and i think in our initial conversation that's kind of where i was going and um and instead it's like how how can we understand the way that that trauma and that history compounds um in these like situations that require a much more kind of like quick response in a lot of ways. Um, and, and just like, as I said, you know, a little, a little while ago, like the frustration with being kind of like discounted or ignored um, or disregarded when you do try to go through like the channels that are like legal um, and governmental or even bunthic. Right. So um I really want people to leave with that understanding or at least try to pull themselves into that understanding. Maybe it doesn't happen today, but maybe it's something we can keep reminding ourselves of. Um, and like with all that being said, like understanding sort of the, the entwined like politics and sort of failures of, of governmental agencies and the context of like, yeah, trauma and history around all of this. 
I did want to talk about those two those two events just at the end. I didn't want it to be a focus of this conversation, but um, talking about the October incident at the Singu border, which involved you know Nahangs and and the media calling it torture or lynching, and there were, there were elements of things that didn't sit right with me, um, where it just felt like going too far, if I can say that. So I wanted to know like sort of what your thoughts were on how to make sense of, of this, while also like acknowledging that this is one of over 400 cases in the past five years. Um, but yeah, just like this element of sort of torture, quote unquote torture, um, really didn't sit right with me. And I wanted to talk to you about it. Yeah. So uh, let's go back to it's political, right? So we must understand this politically. Mm. It's a political problem because 400 cases are pending. You know, we have 40 years ago, a commission was set up to deal with it. It didn't do much. In fact, end up killing four, six. And five, seven years ago when this happens, it end up killing two, six. And commission is set up and nothing happens. Mm. And you have 400 cases of it. This is the lived reality for most six in Punjab. Mm. Okay? In that lived reality, you have election time before that, Every government, both Akali and Congress, the two ruling governments, said they will do something about it. Nothing has been done. Okay. Now you have election time. Before elections, they were invoking, but during election, they've actually released somebody on it and all the deras and the data politics and desecration politics is not even talked about at all. Sure. So what happens is there is a lot of pandering to it. Even when the parties have come together, the ruling parties and the six have come together to work with them to actually even pass legally certain measure, nothing has been done. That's the that's the end. At the end, that's what has happened. In that context, when a single thing happened, this is where at single border in October when the incident happened, uh, uh, you saw the videos, I saw the videos, I got asked about it. And you know what we need to understand that this is one incident out of 400, as you said. And even then, we don't we didn't have the full facts. How many of the people have gone back to see the reports of that lawyers who went there, five of them, and they did investigative reporting as to find out what really happened? Mm. And what they did conclude was this, and they submitted their report, just like they had done in uh, at least three other pre uh, prior incidents. And uh, what they basically said was this, look, yes, at minimum, we can establish that there was, quote unquote, this desecration of a kind. Yes, it did not involve Guru Granth Sahib, but where the person was involved, it had space for Guru Granth Sahib. It happened to be in this case, and the secondary text tradition of the Sikhs, which involved Sarab Logranth, but uh, the, it did take place. And the reaction to that was something is not right because the person had showed up only a few days earlier, and today he was dressed as Nehang. So they cut his limb. That did happen. But the context of that is this again. We must remain sensitive and reverential towards the Guru. We must also honor and not do things which are torturous in nature. Absolutely, there's no doubt about that. Mm. But in that moment, how many people can figure out what to do and they're reacting to the best they can? Mm. I say this knowing very well that there are more things at play here as well in all the incidents. But at minimum, we need to understand this. It happens. Yeah. In one out of, if somebody walked into your house and you discovered something is not right with your mom or dad, how will you react? Do you have time to do certain things? 
You know, that's the question. This is a question not just for six. All ethicists, remember, Adam has to do with ethics. Mm. They're dealing with these questions all the time. Mm. Jurors have to deal with these questions all the time. We may not like the outcome, but this is what happens at that time. So I'm just bringing the human angle. The sick angle is very clear that we, we must remain vigilant towards our own reverence mm. and then interpret the external reverence the best way we can do certain things. And that's where the word soda gets does get invoked. But one out of 400. Second yeah. incident you mentioned, let's talk about that as two. That happened at Sri Harmandir Sa. I mean, uh, it's, uh, it's a two-month anniversary, I think, this week of that incident. It happened where So let's think about that for a second, where the whole world goes to bow. Even those of us Canadian friends who still bow to the queen, you know, even she went there to bow, right? And that's the context. The whole world goes there, even today. Even after post-84, when they try to stop this reverence of the world, not just the six, for six it's the guru, even there this incident happens, where the person is on tapes. We also know SGPC has a task force, uh, on, uh, and they were not able to stop the individuals. But since then, what has happened? Well, guess what? They also set up a investi special investigation team, and they have not concluded their work. So just like there are commissions, there are teams being set up, but at that moment, you know, just imagine if somebody, if where queen is supposed to start a session in a parliament, a special session, and somebody attacked the queen. What do you think will happen at that time? Mm. That's why you have Swiss guards everywhere, right? Their job is to react, to react to uh, not undo the harm, basically prevent it. Mm. And in case of this, individuals also react. And that's what you are seeing in these two cases. So when the words like lynching are used, and you know this, I mean, history of lynching is completely different. This is a problem with how media frames this mm. without understanding and locating it in the sick frame. Uh, so that's not the right word. Lynching is not the right word. Torture is not the right word. Mm. We can say this is what one of the reactions is. And the reaction is because this is what somebody did. Uh, so it is definitely, there is a politics to it. If, if, if with all the evidence, they're not still concluding there means something political is attached to it. Mm. Simple as that. Mm. And in cases where they do conclude in certain commissions and they don't implement the solutions, which means it's still also political because they are not implementing the solution. So in those two absences, in those two cases, and maybe there will be more cases, who knows, because this is ever continuous thing. What else are six supposed to do? Mm. Should they keep waiting for 40 years? Should they not react like you would react in your home if somebody did this to your folks? Mm. So that's what you end up seeing. Can, can we justify certain actions? My question will be, I think that's the wrong question. We don't need to justify anything. Human emotions come out in variety of forms. They're convoluted with the politics of the time. Who really knows what happened? Mm. Yeah, no, this is all great and really helpful. And I think like, even even though these two cases have been kind of on the forefront because they're the most recent and, and they were the most focused on in the media, I think maybe if we can end this conversation by coming back to this larger question of, you know, what is bad be and how do we understand it? What are the kind of questions that we ought to be asking ourselves? Um, and how can we locate our understandings in these larger contexts? I think these are all questions that we can 
leave with and if you have any closing thoughts on you know what conversations we ought to be having either with ourselves or amongst our communities um or yeah any kind of like guidance on how to take that internal reverence into that external i think any of that would be helpful um a helpful way to end so you know i i'll i'll put it in those two terms again internal and external you know the inner and then the manifestation of that in public you know, so personal life and public lives, the panthic lives. So look, at personally, just like we invoke the word soda in an extreme case, mm. I think we need to invoke the word tankha in sick inner case. How, what tankha literally means salary, but sick parlance uses this when I as an individual accept I have been irreverential. Mm. We have also reduced that to kind of a folly, even in the public and the panthic cases, we need to become serious about our personal tankhas, mm. that this is the salary I'm receiving, which means I am willing to do this because I have been irreverential. I think we really need to have reflections on that. Pahinandalal Goya's writing, the Sikh parlance within Guru Granth Sahib in historical traditions, even in Sikh Rahat Maryada, when we look at it, it uses the word tankha. Mm. Individual Sikh who claims to be a self-identified Sikh, when they violate their own principles and when they violate their own uh, sort of uh, protocols, mm. but at the highest level, when they are being irreverential. So I think that requires, this is, the, this is the reflection part. We do reflections so we know when something happens, how to react. That time, the reflections is what will carry a response. Mm. And then externally, we need to also be very, very clear that when we do see these incidents, how we explain, we don't need to find excuses for them. We must own up to it. But we really need to explain what is our relationship with the guru. And we will do anything and everything to protect that relationship. Because that's what we do as human beings. We, you know, uh, the deeper the relationship, the highest levels of responses, including giving up our own head. This is what the sick world says. Yeah. We will do that. And we have done so. And we will do more of that. So externally, we need to, while we continue to work with the laws of the land, and we do actually, I mean, 400 cases and two external responses, you do the math. You know, we are not extremists as the media presents us. Mm -hmm. We are not the people who are doing lynchings here. That's a complete misappropriation of the word. It is actually, we should be presented as being people who have such a exhaustion we have been going through following literally the dictum of Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj, that mm -hmm. we will exhaust all means before we pick up a sword. What else does exhaustion mean? Mm -hmm. Waiting 40 years, waiting for one case, like in the case of Nakoda to be dealt with, waiting seven years in the last Sarvat Khalsa incident, waiting three years when the last Punjab government's commission has expired, going through two governments. So all of this is really our patience. So let's tell our story right. I'm really interested in every Sikh must get this narrative right. Mm -hmm. We are we are very much capable. We are that, that non-violence of the strong people, right? That's the phrase we have used before. That we are, we are capable of doing anything and everything, but we are very patient. We follow civil, civil disobedience. We are very forgiving. We understand uh, mental incapacity or insanity in some cases, but it cannot be the case when it's that much systematic and widespread. So mm -hmm. our narrative needs to be understood and our reverence needs to be understood. 
And then collectively, let's be more deliberative. Mm. I think we are very deliberative as a community and we can become even more deliberative and demand more from our institutions. Thank you. I think that's a great way to end. And I'm glad that everybody gets to be kind of privy to the the workings through of, of this um, issue that we've gone through in our own conversations. Um, so thank you very much. Uh, before we... Absolutely. And you know, I, I'll actually, I just remembered something because Painanlal Goya actually says, because we, we didn't touch on this a little bit and I forgot that, you know, these words like sacrilege and blasphemy, Painanlal mm-hmm. Goya actually talks about that, that blasphemy is within. Mm-hmm. The world is after the outside blasphemy. So we need to deal with the internal ones. So our conversation, I think, also gave me a chance to rethink certain things as to how we need to be talking about it. Because people did ask us. I remember getting emails. How come you guys haven't done a webinar or a podcast or write up on it? And we're like, well, we need to understand how many people are interested in understanding this. Most people are understanding and say that it's wrong or right. Well, we are, that's not our place. We are not the people who are going to say what is wrong or right. The ethicists can deal with this. But this is uh, an issue which every Sikh must understand, mm. especially every self-identified Sikhs, if they have any relationship with Guru Granth Sahib, and we know we all do. So let's have that internal blasphemy conversation. Mm. Let's have this internal irreverential conversation with the self. And a byproduct of that will be these conversations which we are having publicly in a somewhat transparent manner here. And that's um, I'm glad you pushed for it. And I know it's taken us a couple of weeks to go through this, but I'm glad we are doing it because I think this is a a very serious and a very important, to be honest, a very personal conversation for all six. Yeah. No, I couldn't have said it better. I think a lot of this that has stuck with me is about that personal reflection. And so I think it'll stick with me throughout my journey because that kind of coming back to like, what is my relationship with the guru is such an important question and how it manifests in all, all the different ways. Um, so thank you once again. And before we kind of sign off, um, I wanted to ask if there's, you know, anything coming up soon that we ought to mention for people to get excited about or to attend. Oh yeah. I mean, I think at Sikhish Institute, we are looking at how do we start some more in this as we are going from in COVID era is now going from pandemic to endemic, right? That's our hope. So we are looking into doing more physical events, in-person events, in smaller crowds. So look out for that. I know something is in the making in New Jersey as well as in British Columbia. So uh, more of that. And then also um, you and I recently, uh, with help of many others, just published a report on charity and giving. Uh, This idea of Sikhi and giving, you know, what really is charity and what really is philanthropy, this whole idea of giving. So... We invite people to read that report and give us feedbacks on that. Tear it apart. Tell us so we can do a better job on the next one. Hopefully, we are raising some questions which nobody's raising as to how do we hold uh, all Sikh nonprofits accountable, not just the SGPCs, but including Sikh Research Institute. Yep. Great. Thank you so much. With good that, good You are listening to SickCast by Sick Research Institute, illuminating every path.